Welcome to the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine podcast. This podcast is a collaboration between the Society's journal, the ICM journal you all know, and the next committee from the ESICM. I am Ines Lagbar from the University Hospital of Marseille, France, and I am a member of the next committee. Today, we are discussing a paper entitled Outbreak of Hepatitis in Children, Clinical Course of Children with Acute Liver Failure Admitted to the Intensive Care Unit. This work has been led by Professor Akash Deep, Professor Anil Dewan, and Dr. Anita Verma, whom I am honored to welcome today for this podcast. So first of all, a short introduction. Professor Deep is the Director of Pediatric Intensive Care Unit and the Staff Governor of in King's College Hospital, London. He is Professor in Pediatric Critical Care, King's College, London. Professor Deep is also the Chair of Scientific Affairs for the European Society of Pediatrics and Neonatal Intensive Care. And for the purposes of this podcast, he is the first author of the paper we are going to discuss. Professor Dawan is the director of the Pediatric Liver, GI and Nutrition Center and Moat Labs in King's College Hospital NHS Foundation Trust, London, UK. And finally, Dr. Verma works in the Department of Microbiology, King's College Hospital NHS Foundation Trust, London, UK as well. So let us open this podcast with a question and answer session. Professor Deep, Professor Darwin, and Dr. Verma, thank you for joining us today. Your paper describes an outbreak of hepatitis in children. So my first, well, and long question is, is this a new disease? Does it differ from acute viral hepatitis? And does it differ from PTS, which can involve hepatitis as well? Yes, I can take the first part of the question. This is Professor Duan. And is this a new disease? I think the short answer is no. Uh, this is a disease what we call in pediatric hepatology as indeterminate acute liver failure. Indeterminate acute liver failure. Uh, that what it means is that we do not have a viral or inherited metabolic cause because those are the common causes for acute liver failure in children. We do see children who come to us without a cause, and adenovirus also we see coming in the back. That's not always uh, the cause of acute hepatitis. So just to summarize, not a new disease. Uh, we do see, we are seeing the increased proportions during this last or last six, eight months. Does it differ from acute viral hepatitis? To great extent, it does, but we have not been able to identify a virus. So if the adenovirus, acute infection doesn't cause this, and an adenovirus does not cause acute hepatitis of this severity in immunocompetence. So it is a important thing number that these patients are immunocompetent. So hence the answer for that is, does it depend the viral hepatitis? Uh, to great degree, yes, then if you, if you think it's because of adenovirus. I'm passing on to Dr. Akash for comment on PIMS-TS. Thank you, uh, Anil. So I'll try and address the PIMS-TS part of this question. So as we know from the inflammatory profile of PIMS-TS, which is also called 
MISC in the United States, which is multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, that this is an inflammatory multi-system syndrome, which involves multiple organs, including acute kidney injury, cardiac involvement, gut involvement, and even the central nervous system. So it won't be surprising to see hepatic inflammation in the form of hepatitis in this condition. Now, if you look at both acute SARS-CoV-2 as well as PIMS-TS, which takes place a few weeks after the infection, there are reported cases of associated hepatitis. In the preliminary reports, people have reported up to 10% of children with acute COVID-19 who developed hepatitis. And if you look at this paper from New York, which came out in October 2020, where they had reported 44 children with MISC, 43% of patients had got hepatitis, and this was associated with a more severe disease and persistent elevation of liver function tests. Now, the biggest difference, I would say, in children who developed COVID-associated hepatitis or PIMS-TS-associated hepatitis is that these children with associated conditions did not progress to acute liver failure, which we define as an INR of more than 1.5 with encephalopathy or more than two with or without encephalopathy. Whereas in this particular novel outbreak, some of them progress to acute liver failure and some even requiring transplantation. And this is the series which we presented in our manuscript intensive care medicine. So there is some signal, which I'm sure Dr. Verma is gonna elucidate on, whether it's co-infections or SARS-CoV-2 or something else, which is making these children progress to acute liver failure and liver transplantation. Thank you. All right, thank you very much for your response. Um which is leading us to my next question, uh, who, which was how sick were these children and what supportive treatments did they need and why was liver transplantation necessary? Akash, you can take the first part and I can comment on the transplantation. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So how sick were these children? Now, what we need to remember is that 5% of patients had required transplantation in the UK series. So most of the children did recover with conservative medical management, which we never saw in intensive care. Uh, and in our series, which came to pick you, I would say they were pretty sick. And it is this series from pediatric ICU that we presented in our manuscript and not the self-resolving hepatitis, which came to the ward. So they required multi-organ support. They were all given supportive ALF treatment as per our unit protocol. They were all intubated, ventilated, and seven of the eight patients which we presented in our series required noradrenaline. However, the main reason for their PQ admission was neurologic deterioration with majority of them, though it's very difficult to diagnose encephalopathy in this age group, we would say there were at least grade one encephalopathy. These children were mostly pure. And if you spoke to parents, they would tell you that there was a definite change in behavior. And this was similar to what the group from Netherlands saw, that all five patients which they presented had at least grade one encephalopathy. Our patients also had rising ammonias, rising lactates, and rising INRs. We neuromonitored them with transcranial dopplers, reverse jugular venous saturations, and four of these eight patients had abnormal pulsatility index on transcranial dopplers, and six of the eight, i.e. 75% of our patients, had lower reverse jugular venous saturations, and the lowest being about 26%, and it required interventions. We gave aggressive neuroprotection 
with early initiation of high volume continuous kidney replacement therapy. We used a minimum dose of 60 mils per kilo per hour and we initiated it within 24 hours of PQ admission. One of our patients required plasma exchange as well. We used hypertonic saline, we used noradrenaline to maintain the cerebral perfusion pressure. We controlled their temperatures and avoided fevers. And a few of these patients required thiopentone infusion as well. And all these patients required N-acetylcysteine for whatever it's worth. And patients who were positive for adenovirus had received two doses of cytophobia as well. Now, I'm sure uh, Dr. Verma or Professor Dhawan will question the, the utility of using cytophobia in these patients. And I will leave that, uh, that part to them. We had used INR more than four as a liver transplantation listing criteria. And all eight patients had survived with six requiring liver transplant. Now, to summarize what I just said, in the current outbreak, and especially in this series, we have presented only those patients who were really sick. Therefore, our series is naturally selective with predominance of reporting only on the most unwell cases. The message which we want to give out is that though most children with this novel hepatitis do recover spontaneously, the potential for these children to deteriorate should be recognized and treated appropriately and aggressively and in time. Professor Dhawan. Well, the question was, you know, why was the liver transplant necessary? The difficulty here is that doing a transplant is easy. Not doing a transplant is you are taking a risk. So there are no good criteria in children or adults that predict transplant-free survival or transplant mortality, without transplant mortality. The parameter that we use are very crude. Hence, there is always a room for that some people to improve. But uh, we rely on the historic data, and historic data is historic. So what we believe is an INR of 4 plus persisting shows uh, in our experience in the past as in excess of 87% mortality. So, but there is still a 13% survival and with increasing intensive care, quality of care, I think there will be more children. But at this point in time, what we try to do is try to offer auxiliary transplantation, which is gives the option of native liver recovery, but that will depend on the suitable organ availability, et cetera. So at this point in time, I think the reason we chose transplantation was on a risk basis and to give them the benefit of the doubt, uh, because we couldn't predict that liver will natively able to survive because one patient did have a native liver recovery with all the criteria that Akash uh, delineated before. So it is on the practice, but I will say there is always a room if there was something else, some other intervention was given in the meantime. Thank you. Thank you very much. Your answers were really clear. Uh, Dr. Verma, do you have anything to add at this point? Uh, no, thank you. All right, so um, let's go to the next, next question. So what is the clinical interpretation of the blood adenoviral levels, which ranged from 20,000 to 350,000 copies? Is this level consistent with clinical disease? Uh, thank you for the, this question. I think I'm going to answer that question. Uh, the answer to the above question is not straightforward. And our experience and some of the evidence suggests that a high viremia could be a marker of severe disease. Uh, but it is also important to recognize that severity of the disease in every patient varies. Uh, 
and it depends how effectively in these children their immune system is able to clear the viremia so uh, we start getting concern in most of their children when there is a increasing or persistently high viremia so we don't take that whether this is 20000 or 350000 copies but i will stress that it is the increasing or persistently viremia in conjunction with abnormal or worsening biochemical parameter which starts suggesting that there is a worsening or invasive organ disease so that's what where we will be concerned and we will consider treating this patient if there is a option of treatment and in these children because there is a sidofovir so we started the children on sidofovir and also we need to recognize that there are some of the adenoviruses like as uh, among 65 types of human adeno adenoviruses a few types are highly uh, uh, causes a severe infection but in these children it was 41f type uh, which is kind of not known to cause the um, uh, severe disease in immunocompetent children so what we think is that there must be some other mechanism which probably is possibly causing or triggering the liver injury All right, thank you. Um, so you said that cidofovir was used uh, in these children. Uh, why were antiviral therapies given and why cidofovir was used although the liver explant tissue did not show adenovirus or any virus at all? So we start Anita, shall I take this question or Yes, or yes, please. Yes, yes. So the reason Anita made a comment that and in a virus does not cause acute hepatitis or acute liver failure immunocompetent patients now for a second if we stay away from the etiology these children are coming to us with acute liver failure as a cause described by the definition acute liver failure patients all are immunocompromised because they have m1 to m2 shift in the macrophage and monocyte activity in the liver and they create a state of acquired inverted commas immunodeficiency state so if you have a child who has an acute liver failure multi organ failure as a cause described then these patients technically will fall into the category of immuno immunocompromised hence with somebody who has high viral dna adenovirus dna uh, which becomes a reason to treat them so we are not treating them because they had adenovirus before we are treating them now because of acute liver failure a induced state of immune immune incompetence and with a high viral load hence we are treating them to cause any collateral damage from adenovirus that could happen the question why explant liver did not show adenovirus explant liver hepatocytes to be specific did not show hepatitis uh, inflammation or presence of the virus but the sinusoidal sinusoidal endothelium did show presence of virus in few explant tissues and that is that may just reflect the viremia part in the vascular in the circulation other viruses people have shown hhb6 and the, in the meta metagenomics that's happening other viruses have been identified but not uniformly and they are not particularly hepatotrophic viruses so virus presence is there but it doesn't causing acute hepatitis injury very occasional real acute hepatitis or acute liver failure that we have seen with that no virus their biopsies are different they are less inflamed than these ones what we have seen now 
uh, and they do, we do demonstrate adenovirus on staining on those patients, which we did not demonstrate here. So to conclude, the answer is we use sedifovir when the acute liver failure was set in to counteract the state of in immune incompetence that has been created by acute liver failure, and not that we were treating the original episode of adenovirus that started it. Uh, Professor Deep, maybe? I think I would completely agree with my colleagues, uh, Dr. Verma and Professor Dhawan, but we also need to remember is that when you're talking about explants, we are looking at histology after the liver transplantation has taken place. At that point in time, when the patient is with us, he's in multi-organ failure, going, you know, and progressing, and we need to treat what we have to treat. And at that point in time, the only positivity we have was for adenovirus. And if we are in an immunocompromised state, as Professor Dhawan explains, I think silophobia was definitely justified in these patients. All right, thank you, I understand. Thank you for your answers. Um, so my next, my next question is, what is the clinical interpretation of the SARS-CoV-2 investigations? The children had negative PCR, but relatively high rates of SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. Can this mean prior SARS-CoV-2 infection is implicated in this liver failures? Uh, thank you. I'm going to answer this question. Uh, so uh, the presence of SARS-CoV-2 antibodies means uh, that these children had COVID infection. Uh, also, I will like to stress that these children were into that age group and none of them, they have received the vaccine. So very likely these antibodies are produced secondary to the uh, COVID infection. Uh, but on the other hand, we don't know the correlation uh, to uh, how that must be contributing uh, with adenovirus uh, to the infection. Uh, we still are trying to understand the clinical correlation of uh, uh, this and one of the hypotheses what was put forward is a supra antigen theory. Uh, we know from past that uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection can result in virus reservoir in the gastrointestinal tract, uh, which can lead to repeated release of viral protein across the intestinal epithelium, and, th and this as such uh, repeated immune activation are possibly mediated by a super antigen motif within the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And that bears the resemblance to one of the toxic shock syndrome toxin, uh, uh, which is called as staphylococcal endotoxin B. And this supraantigen is one of known uh, to cause the T cell activation and massive inflammatory cytokine release. And it, we also need to understand that in experiment, it has been demonstrated that adenovirus markedly increased the liver injury on exposure to this particular staphylococcal and toxin B because of immune activation. So what I would like to stress or conclude that, uh, that when these two uh, viral infections are together, then uh, it is possible that the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein that bears resemblance to the staphylococcal endococcal toxin B is acting as a super antigen and possibly increasing the adenovirus-mediated immune cell activation and apoptosis of hepatocytes, uh, which is causing maybe the acute hepatitis or acute liver failure. 
Anita, what you meant was there is a degree of molecular mimicry because the super antigen could be initiating molecular mimicry peptide epitopes, and that's why the liver in isolation is getting affected um, compared to other patients. Yes, that is that is one of the possible hypotheses. All right, thank you very much. Your answers are enlightening, and I hope that helps our listeners to better understand the situation of these children. Um, so, my next question would be: What is the interpretation of the expanded liver tissue, and what does it tell us about the type of disease it is? It looks like post-infectious inflammation necrosis, right? Professor Dawan? Sorry, say it again. Uh... All right, do you want me to repeat the question? Yes, please, yeah, sorry. Yes. Okay, so what is the interpretation of the extended liver tissue and what does this tell us about the type of disease this is? Does it look like post-infectious inflammation and necrosis? Oh, sorry. So this is a problem that plant liver, it does not look like anything. It does look like what we see in indeterminate acute liver failure patients we see. What we have to remember is that after the acute severe liver injury, it's very difficult to diagnose what is the causes. So there is a lot of inflammation there in these livers. Uh, and we personally believe it's an immune activation which is dependent on the HLA of the, of the, rest of the uh, individual who is suffering from this condition. But just histology is unable to differentiate between to, or, or help towards finding the etiology. It's more like injury that has happened and immune activation. So we do see it in indeterminate acute liver failure patients. And so far, uh, we have not able to identify the etiology just on HND staining, what we call it. Uh, without special stains in, in here. Uh, and that is true for other etiologies also, which we still don't know in many patients. So doing a liver biopsy in acute liver failure in our center, we don't recommend it because it doesn't add value to the diagnosis. If you're asking a question, was histology beneficial in this, in this outbreak? The answer is yes, because it's a unexpected increase in the number of patients. So we do, we do need to know everything that we can. Going forward, if you think another, another patient comes, we'll be looking at biopsy as a first investigation answer will be no. I will be looking at other causes that we do on genomics or other etiologies of acute liver failure after excluding all the viruses. All right, thank you. Um, last question. How will you treat the next cases if any present? And what do you recommend to other doctors to do? So I think Akash will take the acute liver failure part, but in the community, our recommendation has been that uh, you treat them in the local community with supportive care, man, monitoring their blood sugar, they're eating dehydrated, not dehydrated. So those general care as we do not use hepatitis anytime, anywhere, irritability. If they start showing signs of acute liver failure in terms of whether clotting becomes abnormal, then they need to be contacting the liver center or they should contact the liver center irrespective. And then they need to touch with them. Most of the patients will get transferred to a liver center with the transplant facilities. 
but we don't want to concern the families that every child with acute hepatitis will lead acute liver failure and transplantation. Hence, we try them to manage them locally. In the UK, the system is slightly different than Europe because we have only three centers that look after children with liver disease. So we have very good data. And so far, we have not admitted, we have a few hundred patients since July now, since uh, January last year, and we have not admitted many patients. So answer to that question is, management will not be very any special. We will only give sedefovir when the acute liver failure is set in and adenovirus, adenovirus levels are high. So that's, that will be the only difference compared to other acute level, acute hepatitis patients we manage. And Akash could uh, contribute towards the intensive care management. All right, thank you. Uh, Professor Deep, Dr. Verma, do you have anything to add? Um, I have to say that we will only uh, treat these uh, with pseudofovir uh, when there is a persistently or high viremia or with the progressing organ disease or um, uh, worsening in the uh, biochemical parameters. So for us as intensivists, uh, Dr. Lakbar, I think we are very fortunate to work in a center which has got a fantastic multidisciplinary team of hepatologists our liver surgeons and our micro and virology teams. So if I get another liver failure with a similar setting, I would do exactly what we did to support a multi-organ failure. We'll start the supportive measures, we'll avoid hypertension, we'll treat sepsis proactively, we'll neuromonitor and aggressively neuroprotect them, we'll start them on early high volume CRRT, avoiding the downtimes for treatment, probably case by case discussion with the MDT for plasma exchange, and early discussion, again, in a multidisciplinary setting about listing for transplantation. Now, just a concluding thing, I want to give an example of PIMS-TS is that as our understanding of PIMS-TS evolved, we were able to rationalize the treatment. Initially, we would say, is it staphylococcal shock syndrome? Is it Kawasaki? Is it PIMS-TS? And we would start using IVIG, steroids, biologics. But then as our understanding became better, we were able to rationalize the treatment. And I'm sure with multi-center global collaboration, as COVID has taught us, we should be able to be more precise if we say, you know, I know people are talking about steroids and pseudofovale, we might be able to rationalize those patients better. So I would say given the rare and sporadic presentation of such cases, I would definitely advocate global collaboration to increase the sample size and coordinate investigations. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. I hope that we were able to help our listeners to better understand this condition. Um, so it is now time to wrap up this session. Professor Deep, Professor Dewan, Dr. Vema, I would like to thank you for your time and your very clear and detailed explanations. We look forward to reading more from you and your team. Thank you again. We hope our listeners will enjoy this podcast.